people are coming in and they feel like they have no control over their life. That's when it comes down to what do they want to do? Do they want to stay with this person? Do they want to leave? The statistics, the one that comes to my mind is one in three women and it's one in four men who will experience some form of violence by an intimate partner. The lethality assessment is a really eye-opening tool. There are hotlines they can call, trained counselors that they can speak with who understand what they're going through. Even if you haven't been formally trained, just the knowledge and the, the education through things like podcasts and books and to know how to respond in these situations. Anyone is capable of being an abuser and anyone is capable of being abused. I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and actual survivors themselves. Today we will hear from Emily McCoy. Emily is a professional counselor working at Laurel House, a domestic violence agency serving individuals, families, and communities throughout Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. And I'm a big fan of Laurel House, of course. Emily earned a bachelor's degree in psychology from Westchester University and a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling from Villanova University. Then she started at Laurel House in January 2019 as an intern. After volunteering for a few months after graduation, she accepted a position as an individual and support group counselor. Emily, welcome to the When Dating Hurts podcast. So nice to catch up with you. Thank you so much for having me. I am a huge fan of the podcast. I've probably listened to, I think, every episode at this point. And I have your book as well. So oh, good. very honored to be here and speaking with you. I feel the same way. Thank you. Thanks for giving me your, your time <laughs> today. And, and uh, you know, I, I know that the podcast is helping out a lot of people. I get, I get emails from people. I get different kinds of notes and things like that. And, and it's good because oftentimes someone will, will listen to the first one and they just, when they have time, roll right into the second one. They go through the whole list. So I'm just curious, you know, oftentimes people who select this field for a career had something happen to someone close to them or happened to themselves. But what was it in your case? Why did you pick domestic violence to be your your uh, thing? It's a really it's a really great question. And the truth is that you and I know that probably everybody knows someone who has been affected by domestic violence, even if they don't know it themselves. Sure. Um, and that was very much the case for, for myself, where when I was starting in my master's program, we had to choose you know, a local agency somewhere nearby to do our internship. And through the grapevine, I had heard from an older student who had done her internship there. I heard her speak about Laurel House, and I thought, you know, this is the place that I want to go. It just sounded so great, like the work that they did, the resources and the connections that they had. So somehow I finagled my way in there. I got a hold of the director of counseling at the time, secured an, an interview, and I was able to to get the internship. And it was funny, during my interview, she asked that same question. You know, did I know anybody who had been affected by this? Why did I choose domestic violence? And again, at the time, I didn't think I knew anyone. After I, you know, had been working there for a little bit or interning there, the more I talked about what I was doing, the more I heard stories from people closest to me. So, you know, I learned that my mom, before she married my dad, was in a, a severely physically abusive relationship. And we've gotten to talk a lot about that and, you know, relate it back to the work that I do and the people that I work with. I have several friends who looking back now, I can see that their relationships were abusive, whether it was physically or verbally or psychologically. So I, I see it more and more. And the more people that I talk to, you know, when people ask, what do you do for a living? And I tell them, this is what I do. The stories just keep flowing. I've grown to see that it's everywhere. And we, we again, we all know somebody who has been through this. It is interesting because I really 
I may have seen things that bothered me that some people did in relationships, but I didn't see it in a greater context. I didn't, I wouldn't have thought, oh, domestic violence, you know, that type of thing. You're right. Once you scratch the surface, like, like in my case, once this happened with my daughter, then it was so much easier for people to approach me and tell me their story because it's like they felt like I would have great insights into it or I would uh, have great empathy, which I did. I absolutely did. But, but well, yeah, once you scratch the surface with people, you know, it might be somebody who's been a friend for all these years. I mean, it really is everywhere. And, and if you get into the field or you, I'm not, I'm not in the field like you are, but, but still people will seek me out and send me emails and tell me things. And yeah. Yeah. In some way you are in the field. Well, I'm not professionally in the field, I guess is what I, you know, officially or professionally, but I know what, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely, I'm in it one way or another. That's for sure. So I'm just wondering a typical day of counseling for you, right. you know, just what kind of things do you do yeah. during the day? If you can tell us. It depends. You know, every day does look different. Um, now since COVID, I feel like a lot of it looks very much the same, probably, you know, to people that I live with, they think, geez, you just sit here and, and do the same thing all day because we're operating through Zoom exclusively. But, you know, a typical day, obviously, I, I usually have individual sessions with my clients. Sometimes we, we have group sessions that I also run. It could be meetings with other departments in Laurel House. You know, it could be meeting with one of our lawyers to discuss one of our mutual clients and the case that's going on. Or maybe I'll be talking with the, the people that work at our shelter and coordinating items that a client might need. So it's a lot of phone calls. It's a lot of meetings, a lot of note taking. We have to do a lot of making sure all of that is up to date for our funding purposes. All of our hours and minutes need to be recorded. So it's interesting because it people probably think, gosh, you just sit there and all day and do the same thing. But it does change day to day. Yeah, yeah. I would have imagined that you spend most of your time, whether it's through the computer or face to face, really, but but counseling. And and I and I'm sure it's so much more than that. I'm that's probably the most rewarding part of your day, I would imagine, is is actually helping people work through their their problems and and find uh, safer ground, that type of thing, I would imagine. Right. Right. And that's the thing too about counseling. There's a, a big, I think, misconception about what counseling is. And if you've never been to counseling, you might not know what it is. And for instance, like I'll say before I even went into my master's program and really started to learn more about counseling and obviously practice counseling through my internship, there was a, I had a huge misconception as well. There was a lot of learning that I had to do about people think they come to me as a counselor and I'm going to tell them what to do and I'm going to mm. give them advice. That's not really the case. My job is not to give advice. My job is to listen, number one, be that ear for someone who has no one else to talk to. And then help them figure out what they want to do. The client is, again, they're in the driver's seat. They're the ones, it's their life. So I can tell them what to do, but it's not my life. I shouldn't have that right. You make a very, very good point. One I actually hadn't thought of addressing, but nobody makes their way through their domestic violence situation until they do it themselves. They, You're not going to fix it. Nobody at Laurel House is going to fix it. They have to fix it. Now you can give them ideas and you can you can make all kinds of suggestions. You know, you can give them knowledge that they didn't have. And so often you're dealing with people who feel like they have absolutely no control over their lives because someone else is controlling their life, and that's the abuser. So you're right, but they will never get through it until they are absolutely ready to do it and then do it safely and all the things that you can kind of open open ideas up for them and, and or give them, like you say, you talked about lawyers, you know, help them get to lawyers or help them get to a safe place or, or get them some supplies and clothing or whatever they need. But the lion's share of the work is really on them, right? Exactly. And you made a really good point about, um, you know, a lot of times people are coming in and they they are they feel like they have no control over their life. And a big part of what we do as counselors is that's true in a lot of ways. They don't have a lot of control with very certain things, money or having a job or what they can wear, who they can talk to. And our job is really to help them figure out where they can. There's a little pocket of area where they can gain control. And that's when it comes down to 
what do they want to do? You know, do they want to stay with this person? Do they want to leave? Where do they want to go? And helping them develop their own plan. And that's kind of what we hope to do. Again, we're not looking to tell anyone what to do with their lives. It's really up to them. Yeah, there's, there's a great, great insights to your job. When people think of counselors, they think of somebody that you go and you kind of talk to them and dump all your thoughts. And then they sit there like pieces in a puzzle and figure it all out and say, okay, here you go. You know, here, here's what you, here, you know, here are the steps right. one through 20. And if you have any other questions, I'll answer all of them. And it's, and it's true. It's really not that at all. Right. Yeah. It's so funny. I, I had that exact thing happen to me. I mean, many, many times, but recently it happened where, you know, someone was in a way very frustrated with me saying, you know, don't you have more to say or don't you have an answer? And it kind of came comes down to sometimes ex- re-explaining what it is as a counselor I can do for them. And again, just giving them that insight that I could tell them what to do, but that's just my opinion. And who am I to say what they should do with their lives? You know, it's ultimately they're the ones that have to live in this life. And so it's about what they want to do. And then, right, like you said, taking the resources and the knowledge that I've learned through my training and providing them with that. So that way they feel just as equipped and just as empowered as me and as anyone that works at, you know, Laurel House. So. Right, right. As you do in your own life, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's yeah. what you're trying to show them, that that they can get there, but they have to get themselves there, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Emily, there's some who believe that domestic violence can happen to anyone anywhere. You and I know this. We've talked with enough people, some of us have experienced it ourselves, never ever seeing it coming our way. But there are others who think that that dating violence and domestic violence and awareness about that and understanding it doesn't really apply to them. You know, it doesn't happen in, in their neighborhood. Uh, they don't feel that they need to hear about it, know about it. I've, I've had people who've all but put their hand up in front of me saying, whoa, 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 you know, you're telling me all about this, but honestly, I don't live where that type of thing happens. What would you say to those people? That is something that I've also heard where people say that they don't know anyone or they've never really experienced that. And my response to that is you you do know someone, whether you know it or not. You know, the statistics, there's so many, but the one that comes to my mind is it's one in three women and it's one in four men who will experience some form of violence by an intimate partner. And that's just you know, when we're talking dating violence or intimate partner violence, there's also domestic violence where it could be family members, right? There could be marital violence where it is someone that you're married to. I mean, it is different. So those numbers change even more. So when you think about that, do you know three women and do you know four men? You do know someone who has been affected by it. Anyone is capable of being an abuser And anyone is capable of being abused. It does not matter race, religion, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, occupation. I mean, I've had, I've seen it all. You know, I've had people who their abuser is a physician. Their abusers are police officers. Their abusers are teachers. I mean, coaches, anything, don't have jobs. I mean, it ranges. And same thing with the clients that I serve who are the survivors of this abuse, physicians, police officers. I mean, it goes on and on. So we know it happens to anyone and everyone. Hmm. You're absolutely right. I mean, we have run into that. A few years ago, my wife, who taught in a very private school, you know, this happened to my daughter now over 16 years ago, but she had tried on several occasions to clear the way so that I could come and speak in the school. And the people on the other side of the table listening to her just danced around it. And they just were like, well, okay, hmm, sounds interesting. And, you know, but she'd find out eventually that, again, they thought, well, you know, it's, don't know if we really want to put this in front of the students. This is really upsetting. We're talking high school students and middle school students. Don't know if we want to really put this in front of them. And, you know, it's just, again, it, you know, it doesn't really apply here. It's not that kind of neighborhood. It's not that kind of area. It doesn't really have anything to do with us. So, and so I never got in there. And that was over the course of about 14 of those 16 years. Now my wife's retired, but yeah, so that's it. That's such a shame. It's such, it's such an area like that age and even that demographic in a private school that is so needed. I would say most of the teens that I have worked with through Laurel House come from higher status families Uh with, with more resources, more finances, um, 
So it, it happens just as much there as it does anywhere else. Right. You know, when you think about it too, you know, these kids are going to go off to college. They're going to have the rest of their lives. And anybody that knows anything about it is going to figure they're going to run into it one way or another. It'll be their roommate. I've gotten calls from college students where the roommate's going through something. What should they do to help the roommate? Different things. But one in three women. And I and that's really the only statistic. The one in three women, one in four men. That's the only one I've ever used in my speeches. I had an instance a couple of years ago where I went to an area called St. Mary's County in Maryland. And over the course of three days, spoke before 2,100 students. And I'd give that one in three and that one in four statistic. But I'll tell you, it's scary because I'd get to the one in three and I'd look at all these kids, high school kids in the auditorium. And we didn't have 2,100 at a time. We, we brought them in in groups. But when I thought about potentially one in three of all the young women that I spoke before, that's a lot of people. I mean, that is just a crowd of people. So, so that is a terrifying statistic and it's a real wake up call that it's coming your way one way or another over the course of your life. After all the years, all the people, you know, you know, the people you pass in the shopping center, everybody, you know, that's a lot of people. Absolutely. I'm curious when you speak with somebody, do you go through risk assessments and lethality assessments and things like that? The lethality assessment is actually, it's a part of our intake forms that we use with anyone who comes in, whether they come directly into the counseling department or, you know, we do have another department in our agency called the Domestic Abuse Response Team. They are the advocates that kind of get dispatched out to, let's say, a scene or a hospital, maybe a doctor's office, police station after an incident has just happened with abuse. And they might give the risk assessment there as well. One way or another, we have it on file. And if we don't, we do go through it with people. It's a really great, it's an unfortunate tool that we have to use, but it's a really eye-opening tool. A lot of times people, people who are in these situations are very desensitized to the violence and to the abuse that they are experiencing. And so sometimes to be able to go through those questions and to see those phrases on paper, you know, has your partner ever threatened to kill themselves or kill you? Has your partner, you know, do they own a gun? Are they employed? Are there any kids in the house that aren't theirs? Sometimes seeing those questions on paper, again, really makes it stand out and it it brings to the surface just the level of danger that they could be in. I've been doing this in one way or another since Kristen was killed. And it was only in the last year and a half or so that I came upon these these uh, assessments, and and they're fabulous. And and I would imagine they you know they've been honed over time. The one that I look at most often lately was actually given to me by a homicide detective who works specifically in domestic violence. I'm not going to go through the whole list here, but mm. but it is really it's shocking, it's sobering, but you can see that that maybe if you went through the lethality assessment with someone somewhere along the line, you hope they'll say, wow, I'm in more danger than I thought I was. Because as you say, they've been kind of become numb to it, or it's, if, if it's happened gradually, they're not really doing the math. You know, they're not adding it all up to the fact that, that you're in a real danger zone here. And, you know, you really, if at all possible, should really consider a safety plan to to get out of there. And I know it's, you know, way easier said than done, especially when you have mm-hmm. kids and a financial situation or the the abuser is adept at being abusive, you know, they've they've really got you locked up somehow. But I would imagine mm-hmm. yeah, I would imagine the light would yeah, come on absolutely. for a lot of people once the assessment's gone through and it's You're right. It it's like that light bulb moment. I've seen it happen many times and that usually is kind of what, if the person wasn't already convinced or wasn't already at that point of wanting to leave or feeling like they really need to leave for their safety, that's usually when it happens. It's when we do go through the lethality assessment and and talk about risk. Because sometimes these things have happened over the course of years, and it's so hard to go back and have all of those things tallied up in your brain as someone who's constantly going through abuse and and all the stress that comes with that. So to see it all on paper in a 19 item list really does. Yeah, I can see how that would work. I I know. I mean, just, just reading through the list, I was doing that last night. So one of my questions to you is if someone were in an ongoing abusive relationship 
and you were the very first to speak with that other person, what points would you want to make right away? Let's say you didn't have a lot of time to make your points, but you're hearing it and it's like, wow, okay, this person's in that spot. What do you want to let them in on right away that's in your mind? Yeah, I mean, that is a tough one because again, we have to think about what space are they in to hear what I I have to say. Right. Yeah. What, what state of mind are they in? Are they looking for advice to leave? Do they want to leave? Are they just looking for an ear to, to talk to about what they're going through? I guess, you know, if I were to say anything, and let's say I don't really know the person that well, I don't know what they are looking for. Most of the time, I would just tell someone that there there is help out there if they do decide that they don't like what they're experiencing or it gets to be too much, that there are hotlines they can call. There are trained counselors that they can speak with who understand what they're going through. They won't experience judgment about it. Because a lot of people, that's the that's the biggest fear is that they're going to be judged or that they're going to be, you know, asked that question of why do you stay? Why are you still there? Why do you put up with that? And so they don't have to worry about that when they do call and when they do come to counseling or they're looking for shelter. So I, I would just really let them know that there's help available for them in wonder, whatever way they're Since you know that it. it's very common for somebody who is not trained, if they had a conversation with somebody and it becomes clear it's an abusive situation, inevitably, this person listening is going to say, why do you put up with this? Why are you still in this relationship? I wonder as a counselor if you would ever ask that question. Oh, it's such a great question that you ask. And I just think back to before I was trained, before I knew what I do now. And I was that person. You know, I had a friend in, I think we were in either high school or very early on in college. And she was dating a person who I knew was being physically abusive, was being psychologically abusive, verbally abusive. We'd been friends for years and she would call me to talk about it. And I would listen And eventually I got to the point where I was frustrated because I had been telling her for so long, you have to leave. I'm worried about you. And of course, I thought I was being a caring friend. I was expressing my concern. I was giving her these statistics and telling her how I was so worried for her safety. And that did nothing except for push her farther away from me and closer to him. And that just further, further isolated her. She felt like she couldn't even come to me. I was now the judgmental person who was just giving her a hard time and laying into her. And that was just not what, what seems she seems like being a great time. friend doesn't work. It's not that you're demonstrating you're not a great friend. You're demonstrating you're a great friend. It's just that you don't know enough and I wouldn't yeah. know enough. It's... You know, like as a father, if my daughter had come to me and talked about some of the things that she was experiencing, and maybe if I got to that point where I thought, well, you know, this guy's a pain in the neck. And and, and what, do you, what do you mean it want you to see your friends and this type of thing? I could be tempted to get the car keys and maybe go over and see him. You know, again, completely wrong. You know, the wrong move. And yet you think as a as a good parent that, well, I probably should do that. I I need to help her. Right. Right. Exactly. That's why it's so important to have that even if you haven't been formally trained, just the knowledge and the the education that's out there through things like podcasts and books and to know how to respond in these situations. Because as just a regular person who hasn't had this training, our first response is to jump into action and to say, what can I do? You know, we go into fight or flight mode. And like myself, I very much was in fight. You know, I want to, yeah, I want to go tell this person off. I want to jump in there and save my friend and pull her away. And, and none of that is helpful. You know, most of the times it, it makes the situation worse. So now it's it's funny. Thankfully she she got away from that situation and I then a couple years later got involved with Laurel House, went through the training and I'm sitting there during our trainings and they're literally telling us this is exactly what you shouldn't do and I'm just remembering everything that I did was on that list of what we shouldn't do. And so it was a really big light bulb moment for myself and that's I think the message that I try and tell everybody is you cannot force somebody to leave or you you can't tell them what to do. You just have to be supportive, which is I one of the you. hardest you know, things. The to idea do. of being a great listener, 
of not being, on the other hand, a, an interrogator, you know, where you just keep hammering them with all these questions. And, and I mean, you could think that being a great listener would be being a great interrogator because you're kind of hitting them with these pushy questions. And it's like, you don't get yeah. it yet. Okay, here's another question. You don't get it? What do you mean you don't get it? Don't you get what this guy's all about? Don't you see what he does to you? You know, did you notice, you know, you used to have 10 friends. You've got like me, you know, and I'm fading. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, that only just further, it, it almost like you're jumping into the cycle then of, of like verbal abuse with, with the abuser, you know, as a friend who's now you're putting down your friend or the person in your life that, you know, who's going through this, you're making them feel like they're they're still doing something wrong, which is all that they're going to get from their abuser as well. So again, it's it's really tough because you feel like you're helping. And I was in that headspace for so long, not only with just this one friend, but I had several friends who went through something similar. I'm thankful now to have had the training that I have and to have finally learned what I can do to help. And even as a counselor, where I see this every day, work with it every day, I empathize so much if if anyone is the friend watching their loved one go through this, because it's not easy and it doesn't always, you can still be, you can be supportive, you can be loving and that person, it can still take them years. It can take them a long time to realize what they're going through. So it's really hard to stand by and watch your friend be hurt. I agree with and, that, and you know, suffer. and I'm listening to you very carefully and, and I, I keep putting myself in that position, whether it was a friend or a, a child that level of patience is calling upon. That would be such a stretch for me. I can tell you right now, you know, you just kind of want to become Superman and fly in there and uh, make it all okay. And it, mm -hmm. it has to be very hard to hear all of that from a counselor, let's say someone who really knows and not still do what you think you should do to, to go in there, split them up or uh, grab her, get on a, plane and fly to Alaska or something like that, you know, with that person and just become that rescue agent. But it does, it does, it doesn't work and it drives them back together. Right. Uh, puts that other person in a position where they feel like they have to defend the abuser. Well, you don't see him on a good day. You don't know how sweet he can be. You know, you don't know how nice, you know, he's going through a phase. He was, he, he, he was treated badly by his parents when he was growing up you know, all these excuses that he's loaded into the other person's head that they now will use to excuse his behavior. And he's, he's better than he used to be. You know, he's, he's not like this all the time, you know, those type of things. It's thinking about the parent child dynamic. You know, I work with a lot of teens as well who are coming and they're in dating violence specifically. And a lot of times we do talk about the relationship they have with their parents relating to that relationship. And I know a couple of clients in particular, I can think of exactly what you just mentioned, where the parents are doing what I used to do. And they, they're just harping on their kids and saying, you've got to end this. You can't talk to this person. You've got to delete their number and delete your social media and all of these things. And I'll just say it, it doesn't work. If anything, it only just makes their child feel worse about themselves, makes them feel like they can't go to their parents. And I know that that's not the parent's intent. I know that that parent is coming with love and fear for their child's safety and their child's well-being. But it's just such an interesting dynamic that that's not what's being received from their child. And it, you're right, it just pushes them farther into that relationship almost where they defend and they start to really only focus on that those good aspects of their partner who is perpetrating any sort of abuse, whether it's physical or verbal or psychological. My daughter was murdered in 2005 by her ex-boyfriend. And no, time doesn't heal all wounds. Since those dark days, I have given over 100 speeches and interviews. To be able to dispense such life-saving information, I needed to do a lot of research now it's all in one place. My daughter's story and our family's journey is now available in a book entitled When Dating Hurts, available only on Amazon in paperback and ebook. If you have a child, a family member, or a friend between 16 and 24 years of age, 
I suggest you give When Dating Hurts a Read. The information in this book has already saved lives. Yeah, it seems like the best thing, as you already talked about, being a great listener. Besides that, I would think if a parent has some good information, somehow, I mean, I think in terms of like putting it in an envelope and leave it on their bed and with a note that says, read, read this if you want to, you know, because probably in their own quiet time, maybe if they have a few triggers that they get, what seems like came from the outside, not from the parent or sibling, that maybe they'll look at it and say, you know, maybe I ought to think about other options. A few years ago, I was contacted by a woman who lived locally and her daughter was going through all kinds of things. She was a senior in high school and she gave me a whole litany of things that this, this, uh, uh, her daughter, the senior, was going through with a, a guy who was a senior. But it was just all kinds of antics having to do with the senior prom. And he was using that as a power control thing. Like, well, I don't know if I really want to take you. And then he would take her, but then he wasn't going to take yeah. her, all this stuff. And she, at some point, said that, well, that's okay, because I'm going to go with someone else. I'm going to go with this guy that she'd known since she was in grade school. And then the word comes through that if you go with that guy, my pals and I are going to beat the hell out of him. So it's like, okay, well, then that guy backed out. You know, it's like, uh, I'd love to go with you to the prom, but I don't want to, you know, get beat up. Eventually wound up going with the abuser. And the mother was saying to me, she's going to be going to the prom with this guy. And he'll be coming over here and right. be wearing a tux or whatever and all that. Am I supposed to stand there and take pictures of this guy and with my daughter? I don't want him anywhere near this house. And my answer was, yeah, that's actually what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to try to put a smile on it. And we danced around and mm. talked about different things. And I said a lot of what we said here because I wasn't in the, I knew then, even though it was a few years ago, that you can't push this relationship apart. But the one thing I said to her was, if you think your daughter would ever get to the point where she would chat with me on the phone, I, I would do that phone call. So there was a Sunday at 10 in the morning, I remember, and the mom calls me up and her daughter's right there and they both got on the phone. And we talked for about a half an hour and I kind of went through the template of every abuser follows, talking about how in the very beginning, it's usually like a storybook romance. Then it moves into the isolation stage, then threats of violence, then actual violence and then convincing apology, and then we go back to storybook romance part again. And it goes through the whole cycle, it goes over and over and over. It seems like it never seems to vary from that from anybody I've ever spoken with. So I started taking her through the template, and I got to threats of violence, and she says, oh, no, he's really never done that. And the mother was still there, too, and she actually offered instances of when he slammed on the brakes one time, or he took a swing at her, and, and different things are threw something at her. And she says, well, yeah, I guess that would be that. And I said, well, if there isn't real violence yet, I will guarantee you it's coming because at some point you're not going to do what he wants and you're going to, you're going to pay for it. You're really going to pay for it. Oh, wow. The best thing in that phone call, the thought occurred to me and I said, let me ask you this question. You must be 17 or 18 now, right? And she said, yeah, I'm 18. I said, you know, there's a good possibility you'll live another 70 or more years. And I know you're not married to this guy, but you're on that path because you've been around him for a year, you've seen what he does, and he will do more of it, and it'll get worse, I guarantee you. But imagine for a minute that you knew him all the way through college, and let's say you got married. A lot of things happen when you get married. There are a lot of problems that have to be solved. You have to solve them with him. Let's say you have children. There are difficulties having children. There's all kinds of decision, decisions that have to be made, but you'll have to make them with him. And just looking at your life now at 18 and looking ahead for 70 years, here's my question, which I don't want you to answer to me, but I want you to think about. And that is, is he the best option you think you'll ever have? Is he the best you can do? You're an A student. You're going off to a good university in Virginia one day. And I know he's not, he's not going to that school. He's, he's not going with you, although he'll want to keep showing up. But but I'm just asking you, do you think he's the best you can do for the rest of your life? Because you're on that path right now. I heard from that mother a few weeks later, and she said that's what made the difference. It was, it was an outside person. And I told her objectively, I said, I don't know you. I'll probably will never meet you. I care about you as I care about all kinds of people. But my question to you, which I'd like you to think about, and the mother said that made all the difference in the world. And that helped to tamp this relationship down.
that conversation and that question that you asked is exactly what exactly what you you should do in those situations where you're you're planting the seed is what we call it. You know, you might not see the finished product, you might not see the full bloom, but you're planting that those seeds of knowledge or those questions that people can reflect on. It's like that same thing of leading a horse to water. You can't make it drink, but you can lead it to the water. Yeah, that's that's very good. Make the make the water look uh tantalizing, right? Exactly. Make it look like nice, clean, fresh, wonderful exactly. water. Exactly. And then just say, okay, just want to let you know there's water over there and it's really nice and all that. I'm going to go do something else. You decide what you right. want to do. Considering where you've been drinking lately, do you think that's the best you can do? You know, exactly. so. So I'm curious, Emily, what are some powerful resources people can turn to to gain more knowledge? There are definitely websites. I would also really encourage people to listen, one, listen to this podcast. I think the guests that you have on this podcast, it's such a wide range. You know, you've got actual survivors themselves. You hear from family members of victims. You hear from police officers, detectives. You can hear so many different stories and instances that not only are you gaining information and knowledge, but you're also, I would hope in some way, really gaining that compassion and empathy for the survivors who have been through this and who are sharing their own stories. So I think the podcast, this podcast is great to listen to. Yes, Again, books. I mean, books are so great. They've been helpful to me in gaining an understanding of how to help and also just how to listen. So again, your book, When Dating Hurts, is amazing. Thank you. Yeah, of course. I also really think there's great books about just trauma in general and understanding how trauma impacts people because we know that domestic violence and dating violence is traumatic. And then you also do have great websites to go to if you know you're local to the Philadelphia area and you're interested in learning more about Laurel House. We are laurel-house.org. There also is the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. They have their own website as well. And then there is also another great website. It has a lot of great resources. It's called thehotline.org. And on there, you can get a lot of really great information about warning signs of abuse, the power and control wheel. You can, at the top, there's a little link. It says, get help. And you can type in your zip code and it will list all of the local resources near you. So it's really, really great. They can also create a safety plan online on that website. They have an interactive wow. safety wow, plan. Great. Yeah, great. so it's, it's gotten a lot better where you don't just have to call a traditional hotline. Those are always an option as well. But some people don't feel comfortable doing that yet. And if you want to just do your own research, you know, go online, read a book, listen to a podcast when you're in the car out for a walk. There's so much information out there through people like yourself, Bill, who are doing this work and sharing this message, and then survivors as well who are, who are sharing their stories, again, in just hopes to prevent this from happening to others as they navigate relationships. Yeah, that's great. That's a whole, that's a good list of, of places to turn to. The one that you talked about, the one you called the hotline.org, that's the, actually mm -hmm. the National Domestic Violence Hotline, right? Yes, it is. That's yep, the big, exactly. that's the big, big, the big mamu, right? That's the, the big, big one. one. Yep. They, and that yeah. website is so great. That hotline is great. So if you're not sure where your local resources are, they are the ones that can connect you to it. That's a great website. I recommend it to, I send it to like my friends. I send it to all my clients. People are like, all right, stop sending us stuff. I've called them a couple of times just to chat with their counselors or ask about their decision tree and things like that. Mm -hmm. And they have to treat me like, uh, sir, are you okay? Are you in a dangerous situation? And they go through that whole thing. And it's like, look, I'm telling you the truth. Right. I'm just calling to gain knowledge. And I tell them what my background is, and then they'll talk to me. But up until that time, they feel like it's like I'm calling 911 and I have an ongoing situation downstairs or something. Exactly. You know, so. Well, you never know. Yeah. And that's the whole, I guess their whole point is they just want to be prepared. And again, you never know. I'm sure you've also heard those those phone calls. I feel like I've seen it on the news and stuff where people who are in dangerous situations, they'll call 911 pretending to order a pizza or be calling their friend, right? Yeah, and and yeah. the 911 operator does pick up on it and say, you know, are you, if you're, if you need an, you know, an ambulance or police to respond, 
say, you know, yes, you'd like pepperoni or something like oh, that, where well, they yeah. come up with these codes and yeah. it's just great. So yeah, I knew pizza was a trigger, but I didn't realize the ingredients. I've heard it a bunch of different ways, but I think it's so to see those things circulate, I think is great because sometimes people are stuck in a situation where they do not know how they're physically going to get out or how they're going to call for help because that person is always there. And it's something that's kind of so simple. Anyone can call and order a pizza. And that can be, you know, the difference between life or death. You know, many people I speak with have been counselors for decades. Most of the ones I've spoken with, whether on a podcast or just walking up and talking with them at some event or something like that. You, on the other hand, are in your third year. So I'm looking at it like you made the decision to head in this direction not that long ago. What would you tell someone who is also considering getting into the domestic violence field? Who's maybe, you know, should I do that or should I, I don't know, become a teacher or should I? So I would tell them, you know, absolutely do it. It is not always an easy job. You know, there are always challenges, both personally and professionally, but it's one of the, it's the most rewarding thing I've ever done. And it's only going to continue to grow just with the work that we're going to continue to do and, you know, the change that we hope to see. I would say, you know, it really also depends on the agency that you work in. You know, I'm very lucky to work at Laurel House and the people I'm surrounded by are supportive and insightful and always willing to help. The The community that we're in also is is great. I mean, there's always challenges in getting a community on board with the message that you have, but we've always had a lot of support within our community. And, and it just feels great to... I, you know, in some ways, see that change happen to see people hear about you and come to you and say, you know, I've I've seen your name around and I finally got the courage to call. So again, just to, to answer that is if you're thinking about it, maybe volunteer. Places are always looking for volunteers. Get your toes wet a little bit. See if you like going to the events or maybe you'll be in a hotline. Uh, hotline operator is the word I'm sure. looking for. That I think is a good way to test out. Is this a field that you see yourself thriving in? The training alone that you'll go through is so informative and I think is important for everyone to know. So I don't think you you could ever go wrong with going in this field. Yeah, that's great. I, I'm sure somebody listening, maybe you know, multiple people listening to this will say, you know, that's really perhaps the best use of my time to, to yeah. do that. And and they, you know, they don't necessarily get in right after college. I met people who have gotten in in their 50s, you know, that oh. said, okay. Yeah. Now I'm going to do this. You know, my kids are getting a little bit older now and I got time and I, I don't have to go 40 hours a week, but but I want to do something or someone has done something for me or somebody in my family and I and I have to I have to give back in some way and what yeah. better way than to help to better people's lives or save lives. So Our staff and our volunteers are really comprised. It's such a wide range. I mean, obviously I'm newer. I'm, like you said, only in my third year in this field and really professionally in general. So I'm more on the the newer side. And then we've got people who have been there for more than two decades, who have been working specifically at Laurel House, have a plethora of experience and knowledge. And then we have volunteers who maybe this is their, their kids are in college, they're out of the house, they're retired, they're looking for ways to give back to their community and fill their time with something that is rewarding and that they're passionate about. Anyone can do it. You don't have to have any degrees. You don't have to have prior experience in this area. Or again, even know somebody who's been through this, you can just jump right into it. And I would say too, if anyone who's listening to this podcast is listening and feels compelled to help in some way, the best thing to do is get involved, find your local, your local resources, your local agency, see if they need volunteers, or just even post their flyers around, go to places that you know that have bulletin boards, share it on your social media, talk about it. Again, you know, I don't have to be a counselor for people to open up to me. But once I mention that I work at a domestic violence agency, the stories just come. And so even if you just say that you volunteer there, people will open up to you and you'll be able to spread that message farther and farther. You know, the more we talk about it, the more people will feel less alone and they they might feel like they can get that help sooner rather than later. You're absolutely right. And, and uh, you know, what, what an incredible feeling to meet someone 
who is going through something like this and be part of turning their lives around, you know, where they've been living in a nightmare for a long period of time, a lot of these people for a very long period of time. I mean, we've, we've met people who opened up after they were, they've been married 25 years and from the outside, they have a really nice house and in a nice area, not terribly far from where I live that have presented themselves because they felt that they could talk with us and, and shared what was going on. And you would never, you would never guess that they were experiencing what they'd gone through. And it's been, they've been living in a nightmare for decades it's just decades. It's incredible mm-hmm. to, to be part of turning someone's yeah. life around like that. That would be, I don't know, you know, it, it has to make you feel great that, that you did that for somebody. And I'm sure you feel like that every day of the week. So you're really part of the solution for so many people and so many more to come. Right. So that's, that's exciting for you. Yeah. It, it, and again, it, it's a really rewarding job. It's interesting because whenever I meet people and, you know, you're talking about what you do for a living and, you know, I mentioned, you know, I'm a counselor, I work at a domestic violence agency, you know, a lot of times their reaction is, whoa, um, oh, like, that's cool, I guess, like, people don't know how to respond. And, you know, I I instantly come back and I say, no, it is, it's a really cool job. It sounds kind of bizarre to say, because obviously, the work that the people that we meet and what they're going through, I mean, this might be the absolute worst time of their life, you know, what they're going through, I know you've said this before in the podcast, but they're dealing with, you know, the worst that humanity has to offer. And it's true. And, you know, it's tough. It's a hard job. There are days I leave the office and I do feel very heavy. And I think, gosh, like so many people are going through a really, really tough time. But with all of that, there is immense strength. Each one of the clients that I deal with and the people that are in our shelter that we talk to the strength that they have is just, you can't even put a cap on it. You can't even measure it. And that really is what I think continues to drive the work that we do and just continues the empowerment that we try to share and keep building upon. So it's tough work, but again, it's so rewarding for sure. You're right. And so many people I've talked with when they talk about the people who were abused said, you know, it didn't take me long to realize what a good person that person was. And unfortunately, abusers figure out who those people are and prey upon them more than anybody else. Oh, yeah. They'll go after somebody who is nice and sweet and kind of puts up with them or is trying to help them out in different ways. So they accidentally become the enablers for the abusers. And that's part of the attraction going in that direction, right? Absolutely. And un- unfortunately, sometimes the people being abused are attracted to the abusers because they exhibit so much strength and they think, well, I want I want to be around somebody who's strong. But unfortunately, it's strength used in the wrong way. It's strength used to control them. And you can see how each side enables the other side in some way becomes mm-hmm. this kind of dance. You know, thank God people like you are out there trying to explain to people that what seems so good in the beginning is really not good for you at all, right? Mm. Yeah, that was really well put. How do you kind of describe the dynamics between people who could end up in an abusive relationship and those who do abuse? And you're right, it comes with that power dynamic. And that person who wants to abuse wants to be in power, wants to have the control. And oftentimes here for my clients, they feel that they were weak or they feel that they were dumb or I mean I've heard all of these these self-deprecating descriptions and it's not true at all. I mean the thing that abusers are attracted to is that empathy, is that kindness and that warmth that people exhibit and it gets exploited. And I ask people, you know, do you think it's bad or dumb to be compassionate and to be empathetic towards someone, to be open and understanding? And most times once I rephrase it that way, they start to realize that those are actually really great characteristics to have. Mm-hmm. And just Truly because are. you exhibit those things and somebody chose to take advantage of it doesn't mean that you were in the wrong. But I mean, that's what years of abuse and manipulation will convince them is that they were the ones that they shouldn't have been that way. They shouldn't have been so open and they shouldn't have been so naive. And it's just so sad to see people think of themselves that way because most times what they're exhibiting is just basic human emotion. And when someone takes it and twists it and uses it against you, it becomes really hard to see that as a strength. 
That is very well put. Very insightful. Wow. Must have come from your master's degree work, right? <laughs> well, I would say the, the you know, it's interesting because I, I loved my master's program, but I don't even think in my master's program there's enough emphasis on domestic violence. Oh, okay. Oh. And it's something that I've talked about with my supervisors at Laurel House where, you know, we've reached out to, we've actually reached out to the, where I went Villanova and we're trying to figure out how we can get more education about, around domestic violence and dating violence into the curriculum. You know, Good. we have classes specific to crisis and prevention of crisis and domestic violence, dating violence falls right in there. So we're really trying to figure that out about how we can continue to train future counselors to be trauma-informed, specifically around dating violence and domestic violence, because the last thing that we need is someone going to a counselor in general and getting that question of, well, why are you staying? Why are you putting up with that? And when they don't, they just don't have the training to understand what that person is going through. So it's something that we're working on. We're hoping to continue to you know, not only educate the community, but counselors in training. You learned it right where it's happening. Exactly. You're, you know, you're seeing it happen in real time. It's not a classroom situation. It's not a book. Exactly. Yeah, you know, it's not in a PowerPoint somewhere on a screen. So Emily, thank you for joining us on this When Dating Hurts episode. You have to know my admiration for those like you who get into this field. My admiration continues to climb up and up and up. You come face to face with people who have experienced the worst that one person can do to another person. And you have my total respect and appreciation. And I could never say enough, honestly. So thank you for giving our listeners the opportunity to learn from someone who knows domestic violence from the inside. And I look forward to speaking with you again sometime soon. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bill. I have had a great time chatting with you and getting to talk about all the things that we've learned and sharing it with other people. So your, your message and the work that you do through your book and through your podcast is so needed. And I think it's so helpful to so many people out there. So thank you for doing what you do. Yes. Thank you for all those kind words. And, and I want to keep in touch with you and just kind of, you know, I know, I know a number of people at Laurel house who've been there a very long time. And, and I guess one day they'll say, okay, I'm, I'm going to get out now and let someone else come up, but I figure you're going to be there forever. And uh, so I want to keep in touch with you, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, please do. I would love to keep in touch and obviously keep listening to the podcast as it keeps coming out. Thank so you. I tell everybody about it now. I'm like telling all my friends, I'm like, hey, you need a new podcast to listen to. Here it is. <laughs> you. you bet. Thank you so much. One in three women will suffer serious physical violence in an intimate partner relationship. It typically happens between the ages of 16 and 24, but can happen at any age. We lost our daughter to dating violence, but if we had read a book like When Dating Hurts back then, we believe things would have turned out differently. Do your daughter a favor. Do your family a favor. Dating violence is real. Believe me, I know. Read When Dating Hurts, then pass a copy to someone who needs to see it. When it comes to something as insidious as dating violence, there are no do-overs. <laughs>